الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونتوب إليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضل فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم وبعد فإن أصدق الحديث كتاب الله وأحسن الهدي هدي محمد وشر الأمور محتساتها وكل محتسة بدعة وكل بدعة ضلالة وكل ضلالة في النار أيها الإخوة The topic as you heard from our dear friend and brother Kamen uh, is on the way to unify the Islamic Ummah. And I must uh, correct uh, my brother that uh, the knowledge which you will be hearing today is not something that I have come about, but rather uh, indeed is something which uh, Sheikh Abdurrahman al-Khaliq, who was originally set to give this lecture, uh, has written in a book. And uh, initially the uh, lecture uh, was to be given by him, uh, but unfortunately since he was unable to attend this conference, I've been asked to give his lecture. So any uh, distinction in the topic refers back to the Shaykh, may Allah reward him. Uh, moreover, the, uh, the book has been almost finished in translation, and I would hope that within maybe uh, the next two weeks, perhaps before the end of Ramadan, uh, the copy of the lecture, the book is about 70-80 pages, on the way to unify the Islamic Ummah, will be in all of your hands, and uh, you can look forward to that uh, from the Islamic Assembly of North America. Inshallah, he's that. So, uh, the lecture uh, consists of eight steps. Uh, eight issues that Sheikh Abdurrahman has placed as essential for the unity of the Islamic Ummah. And this is taken not only from the texts of the Quran and the Sunnah, but moreover from his experience working uh, in uh, Islamic affairs and in Dawah uh, during the last uh, 30 or more years. The issue of unity, I would imagine, is something that you all have understood its importance. However, though, I would like to point out something, that Islamic unity is an aim in and of itself and is not a means in the Islamic religion. It is a command by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it is a sharia obligation, and it is an aim of our religion. And in contrary, division, separation, argumentation, quarreling, they are also things which have been condemned in the Islamic religion and which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has forbidden. Allah in His glorious book says, وَعَقَصِمُوا بِحَبْلِ اللَّهِ جَمِيعًا وَلَا تَفَرَّقُوا And hold all of you on to the rope of Allah and do not split amongst yourselves. This rope of Allah is Allah's book and the sunnah of the messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And it was for this reason that Imam al-Bukhari, that great scholar, has authored a book 
is in the collection of his work of Sahih al-Bukhari uh, known as Kitab al-I'tisami bil Kitabi wa Sunnah the book of holding fast to the Quran and the Sunnah and for those of you who have a copy of Sahih al-Bukhari in the English language you will find it in the ninth volume just preceding the book of At-Tawheed Kitab al-Tawheed which is the final book in Sahih al-Bukhari if you look at the commentary in Arabic as to why Imam al-Bukhari entitled the chapter or that book Kitab al-I'tisami bil Kitabi wa Sunnah or the book of holding fast to the scripture and the sunnah of the Prophet Sallallahu it is said that he took this from this verse وَأَقَصِّهُ بِحَبْلِ اللَّهِ جَمِيعًا وَلَا تَفَرَّقُوا and hold fast to the rope of Allah all of you and do not split apart so this rope of Allah to which we are commanded to hold on to is what? the book of Allah and the sunnah of the messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Allah commands us to hold fast to it and not to split meaning not to split by not holding fast to the book and the sunnah because when Muslims do not hold to Allah's scripture and when Muslims do not follow the way of the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, they invariably split if you find division it is due to lack of adherence to the book and the sunnah because the command or the order to be one and to be unified is found in the book and the sunnah and likewise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says do not argue or do not quarrel amongst yourselves and then you will fail and your power will depart from you and be patient for Allah is with those who are patient so in this verse Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us that if we quarrel amongst ourselves if we differ amongst ourselves our strength will depart from us and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us to be patient because he is with those who are patient meaning that he assists them he protects them he guards them he watches over them and so forth from the meanings of his lordship and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said in the Quran كُنْتُمْ خَيْرُ أُمَّةٍ أُخْرِجَتْ nas." you are the best ummah which has come forth for humanity and this is praising us as an ummah and obviously if we are divided into groups and parties and sects we are not an ummah so therefore this verse would not apply to us and this again shows us the importance of unity and likewise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says do not be like those who have divided and have differed amongst themselves after the clear signs have come to them and they these people they have a very severe punishment so in this verse Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us that those people before us they received the clear signs from Allah and yet they divided themselves and that if we do this we will receive a severe punishment from Allah and then the verse verse the verses continues that on the day when faces will be whitened and faces will be blackened and as far as those faces which are blackened it will be said to them have you disbelieved after your faith so taste the punishment by which you disbelieve 
As far as those who their faces have become whitened, uh, they will be in the mercy of Allah and they will be there for all eternity. Ibn Abbas, the Prophet's companion, when commenting on these verses, he said, As far as those people whose faces will be whitened, it is those who follow the Sunnah and are unified. And as far as those faces will be blackened on the Day of Judgment, it is those people who innovate in Allah's religion. In other words, they invented a religion of their own and they were divided amongst themselves. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran that those who have divided in their religion, you have nothing to do with them, Muhammad sallallahu So therefore, the way of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu is not one of division, but it is one of unity. Now, these verses, I am sure, you have heard uh, throughout this conference and statements of the Prophet sallallahu which encourage and command in unity. And likewise, we know that the aims of the Islamic religion cannot be established unless we are a unified body. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran has told us that He has sent His Prophet with the guidance and the true religion that it may manifest over all religion, even if the unbelievers find that something distasteful for them. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us that the purpose or among the aims of sending Muhammad sallallahu is that the religion of Islam will be above all other religions, be above all other ways of life. Now, is the religion of Islam today above all other ways of life? Is the religion of Islam above all other religions tonight, today, in the world, practically speaking? No. In fact, the opposite. Who are the strongest people in the world today? Is it the Muslims? No. It is the enemies of Allah. Those who have perverted Allah's religion. Be they Jews, be they Christians, even the pagans, like the worshippers of cows, the Hindus, they have an upper hand over the Muslims in India and elsewhere. Even the Buddhists, they have an upper hand over the Muslims, like in Burma. Even the atheists, like the Chinese communists have an upper hand over the Muslims in China, and so forth and so on. One of the reasons, because the Ummah is unable to apply this verse for which Muhammad was sent for, and that is that the religion of Islam is above all other ways and all other religions, is due to the division of the Ummah. Because the people who are divided amongst themselves, a people who are in quarreling amongst themselves, a people who are fighting amongst themselves, how can they deal with others? if they're just busy with each other. And at the same time, their enemies can exploit their differences and can exploit their division to make them submissive to them, to take over their lands and nations, to strip them of their identity and to strip them of their resources and their wealth, to make them slaves even though they might be free on paper. Now, this shows us some of the important reasons why we must understand this issue of Islamic unity. And as again, I want to emphasize that unity is not a means, but it's an aim of the Sharia. And it is a, a distinguishing quality of the people of Tawheed and the people of Sunnah. Do you not see we call ourselves Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah? The adherents to the Sunnah and the Jama'ah? And then where is the Jama'ah for those who follow the Sunnah? It doesn't exist. 
So then obviously that means that in their adherence to the sunnah, there must be some shortcoming. And that they are not truly applying the sunnah as they claim for themselves. So what is the way then that we may re, uh, return back to how it should be? What steps must we take in order to unify the Islamic Ummah? What is the path that we must follow? Well, this is what the topic of the lecture will try to shed light upon. And as I mentioned, we have eight uh, points, or eight points were mentioned by uh, Sheikh Abdurrahman, and uh, I will be sharing them, uh, these points with you. The first issue is that we must place the Qur'an back to its proper status, meaning in our lives, in our families, in our communities, in our societies, in our nations. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has sent down the book as a guidance, and has sent down the book as glad tidings, and has declared that his book is a light, and it's a mercy, and it is a cure for what is in the breast of human beings. And this book was sent so that people may judge by it and people may judge to it in their differences. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made us a religion that follows his book and has declared for us that our success only comes when we follow his scripture. And unfortunately, the Quran has left this central place in the Islamic ummah. You know, at one time, it was inconceivable that men of our age, and I know that most of the brothers here have entered into the fold of Islam, so therefore uh, they would be maybe excused of this. But for those of us who were born Muslims, it was inconceivable maybe a hundred years ago or 150 years ago that men of our age would have reached this age and yet not have memorized Allah's book by, our, by fully uh, at the age of childhood. It was something common in the lands of the Muslims that as soon as a boy or a girl would have reached three or four or five years old, they would be immediately sent before they could learn to read or write to special schools to memorize the Quran. And so therefore, the memorization of the Book of Allah was something which all Muslims had. And it was very rare that you would find a Muslim who was not memorize the Qur'an either in its entirety or at least large segments of the Qur'an. However, nowadays, the memorization of Allah's book is to the minimum. And you even find sometimes scholars have not memorized Allah's book. This shows that the Qur'an has left its central position. Likewise, understanding the Qur'an. The Qur'an no longer is the object of our study. Many people neglect to pay attention to contemplating upon Allah's book, studying Allah's book, and uh, benefiting from it. Indeed, you find some people spending more time with learning the sunnah and neglecting the Qur'an. And this is a mistake in their education. Because one must begin with studying the book of Allah before he proceeds to studying the hadith of the Prophet But how can we benefit from the Qur'an? What are the means and what are the ways that we must employ in order to maximize our benefit from the Qur'an? And especially since we are coming, approaching very shortly the month of the Qur'an, the month of Ramadan. The first means 
is that we must accept the Qur'an and come to the Qur'an leaving behind us all our preconceived notions and ideas. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent down the book as a book of guidance, as a book of instruction. And so for therefore those people who come to the Qur'an with preconceived ideas, preconceived notions, preconceived desires, and then try to find in the Qur'an that which supports what they have will go astray. Because anybody can manipulate the verses of the Qur'an to support what he wants to say or believe. Do you not see how there are people in the United States who try to argue from Allah's book that we should not follow the Prophet Muhammad That try to argue from Allah's book that the Prophet's companions were all apostates. They try to use the Qur'an and they might quote verses to support their falsehood. What has set them astray? Because they have had beliefs in their hearts, they have had concepts in their minds, they have had whims and desires in their hearts, and then they have approached Allah's book, not seeking from Allah's book guidance, not seeking from Allah's book mercy, but rather they have come from, to Allah's book in order to support their falsehood. So Allah sets them astray. The second matter is that we must have certitude that this book is from Allah and everything which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in that book is truth. There is no falsehood in it in any way. And so for therefore we must, when we come across a verse or a passage which we do not understand, which we find above our capacity of comprehension and understanding, we must then refer to those verses which we understand. Or say, Oh Allah, we believe in the whole book, that which is clear and that which is ambiguous to us. And this is the way of the believers. This is the way of the scholars, as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us in the third surah of the Quran. The third matter which is necessary in order for the Quran to again occupy its proper place is that we must use the sunnah of the Prophet wasallam as the explanation of the Quran. As I've said to you brothers in many lectures uh, in this conference and also elsewhere, the Prophet wasallam was not a postman to come with us with a book which we can do with it whatever we want. We can interpret in any way which we want. But rather he was sent to teach us what Allah has said to inform us that Allah has said to us these words and then to explain to us what they mean. And it comes upon us then to memorize these words of Allah and to act upon them. According to whose interpretation? Our own personal interpretation? No. According to the explanation of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. The fourth matter which is necessary that we observe in order for the Qur'an to occupy its proper place again, is that we must leave those matters in the Qur'an which we cannot understand, we must leave it to the scholars to explain. To speak about Allah without knowledge is a great sin. Indeed, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reckons this sin greater than the sin of shirk. 
For it is the cause of shirk to speak about Allah without knowledge. And to speak about Allah's words without knowledge is like to speak about Allah without knowledge. And so for therefore it is also a great sin to speak about Allah's book without ignorance, uh, without knowledge, with ignorance. And therefore one must be certain that when he does not understand a verse, he should not be so bold to speak about Allah's book, but rather refer that to the scholars who can give its interpretation according to the other verses in the Quran, according to the statements of the Prophet ﷺ and his actions, and according to the language of the Arabs. The fifth matter, and I mentioned it, but it's good to reiterate it, is that we must come again to the Quran with an open heart, with an open mind, seeking from the Quran to guide us. Seeking from Allah that Allah's words will guide us to the truth. And then apply that in our life. Submit to it. Not coming to the Quran with preconceived ideas and notions, but coming with a spirit of seeking knowledge, seeking truth, and a determination to submit to that. The second matter that is necessary, inshallah, Brother Abdullah. Take care of that problem. So, the second matter uh, that is necessary uh, for us to uh, so return the Ummah, to reunify uh, the Ummah, is that we must return the Sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam to its proper place. For Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala has sent the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam with the scripture and with the wisdom. And that wisdom is the sunnah. And so therefore we must revive the sunnah in our lives. We must revive the sunnah in our families, our societies, our nations. And as I mentioned in a previous lecture, people do not have that zeal for the sunnah as is required of them. People take a lukewarm attitude concerning the words of the Prophet Many Muslims feel that if a matter comes in a hadith, it's up to them whether they need to believe in it or not, whether they need to accept it or not, whether they need to apply it or not. This is incorrect. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent His Prophet and has commanded us to obey His Prophet and has warned us against disobeying His Prophet and going against His commands. Rather, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has promised paradise for those who obey the Prophet and has warned with the hellfire for those who go against his Prophet's words. So the sunnah, my brothers, is not something which is a matter that can be easily neglected, a matter which can be put to the side, but rather must be held on with full might and intensity. Do you not see how the Prophet ﷺ guided us in the hadith of Al-Urbad bin Shariah when the Prophet ﷺ gave them an admonition and the companions, as Al-Urbad describes, began to cry and their hearts began to quiver with fear. So they said, O Messenger of Allah, it is as if this is a farewell speech to us. So advise us. And the Prophet ﷺ said, among which what he said, 
was that whoever lives amongst you will see much difference. And it is upon you to follow my sunnah and the sunnah of the rightly guided successors after me. Hold on to this with all your might and beware of introductions into the religion for every introduction is an error. Here the Prophet ﷺ describes to us a disease, describes to us a calamity, and that is the vision of the Ummah. And yet he gives us a cure to hold on to his sunnah and the sunnah of his rightly guided successors after him. And so therefore, one of the most important ways in fighting division amongst the Muslims is to revive the sunnah. And also in terms of the way of his rightly guided successors, this brings us to the third point, And that is that we must follow the believer's way. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran says, وَمَنْ يُشَاقِقَ الرَّسُولَ مِنْ بَعْدِ مَا تَبَيَّنَ لَهُ الْهُدَى وَيَتَّبَعَ غَيْرَ سَبِيلِ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ نُوَلِّيهِ مَا تَوَلَّى وَنُسْلِيهِ جَهَنَّمُ وَسَاءَتْ مَصِيرًا Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that he who splits off from the messenger after guidance has come to him and follows other than the believer's way, we will send him on the direction which he has chosen for himself and we will burn him in hell and what an evil destination. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent down this verse, who did he mean by the believer's way? Who was first and foremost intended by this verse as the believer's way? The Sahaba. It meant the way of Abu Bakr, the way of Umar, the way of Uthman, the way of Ali, the way of Aisha, the way of Abu Hurairah, and others from the Prophet companions. They are the believer's way when this verse was revealed. Just like when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, Ya ayyuhalladina amanu, O you who believe, it doesn't refer to us first and foremost, but it refers to them first and foremost, because the Quran was revealed in their time, and the address first and foremost goes to them. So contemplate this verse, brothers. He splits off the messenger after guidance has come to him, and does what? Follows other than the believer's way follows other than the way of those companions, Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman, Ali, radiallahu anhum, and others, what will happen to him? Allah will keep him on the direction which he's chosen for himself. Allah will keep him on that path, that school of thought, that Sufi order, that nonsense which he has chosen for his life. And then what will happen to him in the hereafter? We will burn him in hell and what an evil destination. How can any reasonable man or reasonable woman choose for himself a path that would lead to hell and decide that it's not for him to follow the way of the earliest Muslims. What a foolish person that is indeed. What a foolish person who doesn't concern with his ultimate destiny. And so therefore the third matter which is necessary in order for us to unify the ummah is that we must revive the way of the believers. And this is not just an intellectual exercise. But if we are to revive the way of the believers, many issues which people quarrel about today will be forgotten or will be having no argument for that. Because you must understand that in the major issues of this religion, the major matters of this religion, all the companions were in agreement to it. The issues like the incumbency of worshipping Allah alone and not worshipping grace. The issue like 
the incumbency of following the Prophet Muhammad and that he is the final Prophet to mankind. The issue of praying five times a day, the issue of giving charity from certain types of wealth, the issue of fasting in the month of Ramadan, the issue of making Hajj to Allah's house in Mecca, the issues of belief, like belief in Allah and His angels and His scriptures and the Messenger in the last day, and belief in Allah's divine decree, matters of conduct, like truthful speech and avoiding lying, of being kind to one's parents and avoiding disobeying them, of being good to one's neighbors and avoid harming them. These are all matters which Allah uh, sent His Prophet to clearly explain. And as a result, the Prophet's companions clearly understood and conveyed to the next generation and applied amongst themselves and there was no differences in them. When we revive the way of the earliest Muslims, the believer's way, we avoid many differences concerning these matters which there should be no difference in. And then we are left with only those matters where it is permissible to differ in as they are not necessarily based upon clear-cut text from the Qur'an and from the Sunnah. The fourth matter which is incumbent upon us in order for us to revive the, or to uh, unify, unify in order for us to unify the Ummah is that we must seek the opinion, opinions of the scholars, those people who Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has endowed with wisdom and with knowledge and with foresight. Not everyone who knows something is necessarily a scholar. And not everyone who has knowledge and is a scholar has wisdom and foresight. And that is why the Prophet said, perhaps someone is carrying knowledge, but he is not a faqih, he is not a scholar. And perhaps someone might carry knowledge to someone who is more knowledgeable than him. So, it is incumbent that we stick with those people who have knowledge and stick around those people who also not just have knowledge but have wisdom and have foresight and are men of good opinion. And this is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran concerning an incident that happened during the Prophet's life that during a battle, the Prophet ﷺ wanted none of the news to reach the Muslims in Medina. The reason why was because he was afraid that the war propaganda from the other side might affect the Muslims' patience, might affect the Muslims' certitude of Allah's victory. So they didn't want any news to reach the Muslims. And therefore, when some news was spread, Allah revealed uh, this verse that when a news came regarding a matter of safety or fear they broadcasted it and had they returned it back to the messenger of Allah and returned it back to those amongst them who were in charge they would have explained it to them this is an important lesson that Allah teaches us even though it happened in a certain historical incident the lesson is still valid until the Day of Judgment. And that is sometimes certain affairs occur, certain matters occur dealing with security, dealing with war, issues that concern the Ummah, issues that touch every single one of us. And sometimes people start broadcasting this, and rumors start. And when this happens, the Muslims, their 
strength and their stamina and their courage might weaken, which might allow the believers to get the upper hand from them. So in this verse, we were, they were told that they should have not broadcasted that, but they should have referred it back to the messenger, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, or referred it back to those who were in charge of them in order to interpret to them what had happened. And this teaches us the lesson that in these issues, these issues dealing with the ummah, like unifying the ummah, reviving the ummah, dealing with issues like the issue in Basri or in Kashmir or wherever an incident happens that affects the ummah, we should refer it back to those who are in charge of us, and in charge of us not in the sense that they have some sort of power over us, but in the sense that they are those who are to be referred to are people of knowledge and foresight and wisdom so that they can interpret for us how to deal with these events. And this is a rule which we can apply even in our small massages. When issues happen, sometimes what will happen is instead of the brothers and the sisters taking the issue to the knowledgeable amongst their community, or if they don't have in their community knowledgeable brothers to refer to, taking it to those knowledgeable brothers who are closest to them, or contacting some of the scholars of Islam, they start broadcasting these news and these events amongst themselves. And then what happens, they begin to quarrel on how to deal with this. And then this results in division and animosity and hatred. But had they taken that news, that event, that affair, and referred it back to those in charge of them, those who have knowledge and authority and foresight, they would have explained to them how to deal with it, and it would have solved the problem and would have cut off the commotion. And that is the fourth matter. The fifth matter, which we must uh, refer to in order to unify the Ummah, is that the Ummah needs to have a single Imam in charge of it. One of the greatest reasons of the division of the Ummah is that we have no Imam. We are like a flock of sheep without a shepherd. And so therefore when some commotion occurs, or we see a wolf coming out of the forest, we all flee in different directions. And then the wolf can take as prey the weakest amongst us. But when there is a shepherd to protect his flock, when there is a shepherd to make sure that no sheep stray from the flock, the ummah stays together. And the imam is a shepherd upon us, as the Prophet ﷺ has said. The Prophet ﷺ said, each of you is in charge and each of you is responsible for his charge. But the word the Prophet ﷺ used in the Arabic language is ra'i. In other words, a shepherd, if you were to translate it literally. So in other words, the Prophet ﷺ said, if we were to literally translate that hadith, each of you is a shepherd and each of you is responsible for his flock. And then the Prophet ﷺ said, the imam is a shepherd and he is responsible for his flock. So the first shepherd of this ummah is the imam of the Muslims. And as we are all aware, there is no imam of the Muslims today. There is no imam which has a political authority over the Muslims. And likewise, there is no ruler which is adhering to the book of Allah and to the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ as it should be adhered to. And so as a result, when these issues occur to the Ummah on a large scale, the Muslims cannot react effectively to it. And the Muslims, therefore, are divided in opinion amongst themselves. And each of these rulers seeks only to strengthen his own position, whether in his country 
or amongst his region. And so therefore it's not uncommon to find these days Muslims putting the sword to each other even though their enemies have targeted them all for extermination. And so therefore among the essential matters that is required in order for the unity of the Ummah to take place is that we must have an Imam. And the earliest Muslims, which we said we must follow their way, understood this very clearly. And this is why they delayed in burying the Prophet for three days until the issue of who was to be the Khalifa was resolved. They delayed in the burial of the Prophet until they decided who was going to rule this Ummah. Did that show you how important this matter is? And likewise, when the companions differed as to who would rule this Ummah, the Ansar saying a Khalifa would be from us, and others saying we will have two rulers, one from the Muhajireen and one from the Ansar. The companions from the Muhajireen said no, because the Arabs would not follow anybody except from a person from Quraysh. And they gave the Khilafa to Abu Bakr. So the existence of an Imam who rules by Allah's book and who revives the concept of Shura, consultation between himself and between those people of knowledge and experience in the Ummah is an essential ingredient for unifying the Ummah. And that is because when Muslims differ, they need to have somebody to resolve their differences for them. If even in any small matter, you might have a difference of opinion. Those brothers who drove to this conference, you might differ amongst yourselves. Should we stop now or should we stop after an hour? Should we take this road or should we take that road? Who is going to resolve this difference if you cannot come to a consensus amongst yourself? The emir of the journey. After hearing the arguments or hearing the discussions of the brothers, if they cannot all unify on one opinion, he would say the final word. And the Muslims then on that trip would agree to it. If the Prophet ﷺ commanded that if three people set out on a journey, they must have an imam, how can one billion people live without an imam? And so therefore the importance of having a single imam cannot be denied. And this is why the Prophet ﷺ forbade it to revolt against the Muslim ruler and again I stress the Muslim ruler even if he is sinful even if he's tyrannical and this is because his sinfulness and his tyranny is less of an evil than if revolutions were to take place splitting the Muslims and pitting them against each other and that's why the Prophet forbade his companions to raise the sword against any ruler who is uh, sinful or tyrannical, so long as they do not see in that ruler clear unbelief concerning which there can be no disagreement. The sixth matter which is important for unifying the Ummah is that we must show purity of intention to Allah's religion. And we must stay away from those matters which cause amongst ourselves hatred, animosity, jealousy, intolerance, and so forth. Yes, we all know that ikhlas, or sincerity, or purity of intention, is an act which is required for every act of worship. As we all know, that in order for any of our deeds of worship to be accepted from Allah, we must have two conditions that precede that, or that are with that act. 
The first being that we must have sincerity or purity of intention to Allah. We only do by this deed only for the sake of Allah, and that is known as ikhlas. And likewise, we must follow the sunnah of the Prophet But more importantly, that in these matter of unifying the ummah, the need for ikhlas, the need for purity of intention, the need to stay away from those evil character and conduct like jealousy, spitefulness, rancor, anger at each other, animosity, intolerance of another person's opinion is essential. When a person is not pure in his intention, he will be motivated for his own self-interest. And so therefore you will see from him these horrible acts or horrible character like jealousy, like spite, like hatred, like rancor like envy, which a believer should not show to his fellow believer. And so therefore it is essential in order for us to unify this ummah that we revive this moral character which we've been commanded to have. As the Messenger of Allah has said, I have been sent in order to perfect character. In order for the best character to be perfected. This is one of the aims of the Prophet's message. And for those of you or many of you might know the verse where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that he has sent his messenger in order to recite upon them his verses and to purify them. Purify them from their sins by teaching them this high moral character. So the sixth matter is that we must have ikhlas. We must have true purity of our intention and we must stay away from those characters and those behaviors uh, of spite and anger and thus forth which splits the ummah. What number do Six or seven? Seven, okay. Uh, the seventh matter is that we must place in front of us the principles of brotherhood. And we must make al-wala something which we apply and not just give lift service to. When, when one reads the history of the earliest Muslims, the Prophet's companions, he, he finds stories which are unbelievable in terms of their brotherhood and their love to one another and how they would give to their brother whatever they would have. How did they develop this? It's because the Prophet ﷺ taught them the importance of brotherhood, taught them the importance of al-wala, of allegiance to the believers, taught them the importance of loving their fellow applied that and executed those commands and executed those teachings of the Prophet And this is essential in order for the unity of the Muslims. It is very strange now that you find people who claim to follow the way of the Sunnah. Some of them claim to follow the way of the earliest Muslims, and yet they will attack their brethren for matters in which they might be mistaken in themselves. And try to argue that it is the Sunnah which tells them to deal in that way. This is ignorance, and this is from the traps of Satan by which they have been befooled. And so therefore it is essential that the principles of al-wala and al-bara are truly applied. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes the believers as ruhama'u baynahum, that they are merciful unto each other, and that they are severe and stern against the unbelievers. Yet you find Muslims so soft, so kind, so
so conscientious not to hurt the feeling of an unbeliever and yet willing to trample upon their fellow Muslim whenever they have the opportunity. Is this the wala and bara which we are taught? Is this the wala and bara which we want to apply? Is this the character by which we want to face Allah on the Day of Judgment? That we are lions among the believers and uh, cats among the disbelievers? The eighth matter which we must uh, use in order to uh, revive the ummah and this matter has some application for us in the West even though it's basically more attended for the Muslims uh, overseas in the lands of the Muslims is that we must work to guide the different Islamic groups. When the Khilafah fell or more appropriately when the Khilafah was abolished by the unbelievers after the end of World War I. The Muslims found themselves in a state which was not previously faced by them in history. And that is they did not have an imam over the Muslims to rally around. As a result, many Muslims uh, felt that in order to preserve Muslim identity, in order to preserve Muslim conduct, in order to preserve the faith of Islam, that they needed to set up groups and organizations to try to preserve this religion. And these groups and organizations, in their closeness to Allah's book and the sunnah of the Prophet and the way of the earliest Muslims, differ. Some of these organizations are very close to these ideas. And other of these organizations are further away. Some of you might remember that perhaps last night or the night before, uh, I was asked a question concerning Jama'at al-Tabliq. This is one of these organizations which was created, one of these movements which was started in order to preserve Muslim identity in the Indian subcontinent which was being effaced due to British colonialism. And as I mentioned, this organization has in many matters strayed from the Sunnah of the Prophet Yet at the same time, they are working to preserve the deen. What should be our position vis-a-vis these groups? We should stand up and give them nasiha and try to encourage them to the truth and try to correct them from their mistakes. Because these are factors of health and factors of growth and factors of life in our ummah. These different scholars, these different groups which are out there trying to work for Allah's religion. And I mean those groups that at least acknowledge or say they are following the way of the Prophet and the uh, way of the earliest Muslims. At least they say that. Whether they do that or not is another issue. As far as those groups which are of a different type, which have their own way, like Sufi groups, like the Shia and so forth, I'm not talking about these people. These have a completely different discussion. So these groups and these uh, different parties and so forth, we must work our utmost to try to guide them to the truth, to try to correct them, to try to give them nasiha, to try to encourage them to become closer to the sunnah of the Prophet and closer to the way of the earliest Muslims. And not take the attitude that the only way we can build this ummah is by burning down everything that is there, making it flat, and starting from again. This is what some people believe. They believe that since there is so much corruption, so many problems in the ummah, and these groups are not free of these problems themselves, that the only way we can rebuild this ummah 
The only way we can start Muslim unity is by knocking down the building, burning it all off, and then when you have a flat piece of ground, start again. And this is a ridiculous attitude. And this is a destructive attitude. But rather, these groups, these people, these individuals have done much good. And at the same time, they are distant from the Sunnah in many matters, distant from the way of the Salaf in many matters. Our attitude towards them is one of support in that which they do good and correct. And in that which they go against the Sunnah from, we try to give them nasiha, we try to advise them, we try to encourage them, because now we are under attack. We are not in a situation where we have the upper hand. We are surrounded by our enemies. The plots of the disbelievers are applied through us by Allah's course, by His Qadr, as a punishment for our sins, in an unbelievable way. If we are to take this attitude of animosity to every single Muslim group, every single Muslim individual, then there is no way we can deal with the situation in which we live. And so therefore we must have a balanced approach. Not acknowledge any falsehood. This is wrong. One cannot acknowledge a falsehood in Allah's religion. One must speak the truth at all times. And one must correct. One must command good and forbid evil. But at the same time, one must realize the era and the time which he's lived and try to build upon the good that's in people and build upon the good that is in organizations rather than try to efface these people and these organizations and not recount any of their good. Okay, with that, we should also understand that we must be certain that Allah's victory is for us. And that whether today or tomorrow or the next day or in some time in the distant future, victory will be for this ummah. And we should never lose hope. And we should be certain that Allah's religion always prevails. And we should never despair. And we should know that Allah is not in need of us. And that if we do not step up for the test, stand up for the test, Allah will come with another people who He loves and who they love Him who are merciful amongst themselves and harsh and stern against the disbelievers, they wage jihad in the path of Allah and they are, do not uh, fear the censure of anybody and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. And as I, again, as I said, this was uh, not my lecture, uh, but rather this was a lecture of Shaykh Rahman, who un- was able to attend and I was asked to sit in for him. And uh, the book which I uh, summarized for you uh, has been translated, uh, not completely, but it's close to completion, inshallah, and hopefully soon it will be in your hands where you'll find a much more detailed discussion. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Subhanakallahum wa bihamdika. Ashhadu an la ilaha illa anta. Astaghfiruka wa tubu ilayk. Wa jazakumullahu khair. Brother, uh, I remember you mentioning in your talk that uh, one of the ways 
that the Ummah to be united is under sacred imam amongst the Muslims. Uh, I was, my question is, how how does one or how does the Muslims as a whole um, come to establish an imam uh, such as this during our lifetime, inshallah, that is possible? No, there's no specific way on how to establish a single imam. I mean, and Allah knows how it might come. Maybe one of the rulers now uh, might repent unto Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And if he repents, a true repentance, he might then do what he's supposed to do. That could be one way. Uh, also, another way that in some of these countries where uh, there is, uh, for instance, um, a lot of uh, chaos, like in Somalia. You see, when it, what happened in Somalia when uh, the country fell apart, uh, some brothers, some scholars and so forth, uh, who were to control certain areas of the country. And now they rule these villages and so forth by the Book of Allah. And they do not permit in it any sort of falsehood. And they establish Allah's law in those villages. So, these villages, it's, Allah knows, but they could become stronger. And become stronger and so forth until they have a state. And not be just a few villages, but have a whole country. Which might then be a uh, base for a Muslim, uh, for a Muslim imam. But, if you were to declare anybody in the audience uh, as the imam of the Muslims, let's say this brother, we declare him like that, I guarantee you that there's not a country in the world where he'll be able to last. They will put him to the sword before he would be able to say one single word. So do not imagine by, uh, as some groups do, say we want to recall to the khilafah, call to the khilafah, that they're going to achieve anything this way. Uh, the way for uh, Muslim unity uh, for the way for an imam of the Muslims is that you must have the jama'ah first. Uh, when there is a jama'ah, the imam will come. Uh, but when there is no jama'ah, even if you have the imam, he will just be put to the sword as would have for most Muslims. Not all of them. So, uh, there is no specific way for it. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, will not leave the believers in this state uh, if they turn to him and repent and really uh, turn to him and obey Allah. But so long as the situation is as now, that you have a few uh, pious people who are being uh, tortured, who are being uh, fought in their country. And the overwhelming of body of the majority of the Muslims just look and watch and are not really concerned. Are, and that's what they're not concerned, but they're not willing to adopt the way which they're supposed to. Uh, they, because of uh, love of this world, they don't want to get involved in these issues. And so therefore you have the few scholars are tortured or put in jail or harassed or stopped from speaking, teaching and so forth. And uh, the situation is always one where uh, the religion is being fought. Now if the mass body of Muslims were to return to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in repentance and were to obey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and his messengers as they should, then these corrupt rulers would not have any chance there. But the rulers only reflect the status of the people because they came from the people themselves. Uh, when we complain about the poor leadership in our mosques, in our massage in North America, uh, we should also remember that these imams came from the people themselves. And that is why when you find a masjid, turn to the sunnah in some areas as has happened. Uh, those imams can't stay there. And they're asked to leave and the brothers put an imam who they like. See? But in a masjid when there's only two or three brothers upon the sunnah and the majority of the people 
in the masjid really don't take a position this way or that, then usually the leadership of that masjid will tolerate those brothers maybe for a little time and then put them out on the street. And that's the same thing with the open. I don't want to do well, one should, uh, in this issue, uh, try to see what interpretation seems to be closest to the wording of the hadith, if he can, or if he can. If she can, and the matter is nothing which is obligatory upon them, then they don't have to act upon it, because if it's nothing obligatory upon them, they're not going to be held responsible for that, uh, which they do not know. Or they can seek the opinion of another scholar. This is another way uh, which would assist them. But usually, for the matters of this religion, which are obligatory upon all of the clear matters of this religion, there's no difference between the scholars. And this is what we should stress. We must stress the clear matters of the religion in teaching Islam in North America. Matters which no Muslim should be ignorant of. Like the pillars of Islam, like the pillars of Iman, uh, like avoiding these major sins, like adopting those characters which are required upon us, you know, behavior and so forth. Uh, these are the major matters of Islam which nobody can differ from. As far as the finer details, these can be delayed to a more appropriate time. Another two more question. Um, first, regarding um, the book, Expression of the Creed, uh, one of the points that was translated saying that uh, it's not permissible for anyone to go to sleep without thinking, knowing that there's an imam over him. Uh, I was wondering what the explanation of this would be. And secondly, um, to advise me and the other brothers as far as one of the groups that are in, in uh, Jordan and around Hashem's region, region uh, Hizb al-Tahrir. Okay, as far as the second question, Hizb uh, al-Tahrir, um, there are some tapes which um, has some scholars speaking and I'm translating, uh, which you can uh, get from the brothers uh, in uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, they can forward it to you. And that perhaps will be a detailed discussion, but a general discussion for those who cannot get the tapes for one reason or the other. Uh, Hizb al-Tahrir is an organization which has done some good in terms of uh, uh, bringing uh, to, uh, to the forefront uh, some of the political issues in the Islamic Ummah. But at the same time, they have a disregard uh, for the importance of Africa. And I saw this myself in uh, England a few years ago uh, when I was giving a lecture on Aqidah and the uh, young men and women from Hizb al-Tahrir uh, when I would discuss matters like the punishment of the grave would start laughing and shouting and, you know, uh, you know making what, what do you call it, cow, uh, cat calls, and some cow calls, cat calls, and so forth uh, during the lecture. And likewise, uh, afterwards, uh, I approached one of them and I asked him would he uh, accept the hadith from the Prophet Sallallahu if the Prophet told that hadith to him and he said he wouldn't accept that. Uh, this is on tape. Uh, so, you know, they have this type of ideas uh, concerning certain hadith which are known as the Ahad hadith. They don't accept them in matters of belief. Uh, likewise, uh, some of their fiqh matters are very uh, strange and uh, ludicrous, some of their fiqh points. Uh, also, another point of them is that they're a political party. They say that they are a political party. And um, at the same time, they require everybody in the political party to think the same way, act the same way, believe the same way. And this is a ridiculous uh, thing. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala hasn't required this from us in matters of religion, that we all take the same position. But it has allowed for ijtihad and differences of opinion in certain matters. So how can they then therefore require 
everybody in their political party take the same position concerning the same issue. That's why they're not an effectual uh, party. And uh, disregard for religious knowledge, so this is their problems. But at the same time, uh, they do a good job in, uh, 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 in some of their bringing forth some of the problems uh, in the Islamic Ummah, uh, like nationalism and so forth. However, though, uh, when you come to political interpretation and political analysis, right, it's a matter of ijtihad. Not every single political interpretation of an event is necessarily correct. I mean, for instance, now, if we were to take five or six people who are knowledgeable of the affairs of Bosnia, okay, and were to bring them together and ask them to discuss the peace treaty that's been signed, we probably will have five or six different opinions. Each person will have a different opinion as to the benefits or the harm or the expected outcome and so forth. So political interpretation, political analysis, is usually a matter of which he has. And while it might be useful in trying to have some idea of what is happening, it cannot be considered a matter of truth and falsehood where you try to make it a doctrine for people to follow. And this is one of the other pitfalls they have. As far as the first part of your question, I didn't understand it. So I don't know what you're trying to say. Yeah, you can repeat it or is it still? This, this, this hadith would refer to the Imam of the Muslims. Uh, just like the hadith that says, whoever dies and in his neck is not a bay'ah, right? He has died the death of Jahiliyyah. Because the day of Jahiliyyah, before the Prophet the Arabs were different tribes, each of them fighting amongst each other. So in other words, if you die without having a bay'ah, it is like dying in those days when you had no imam, okay? But if there is no imam to give bay'ah to, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will not hold us responsible for what we cannot do. So in this case, uh, this shows us the importance of having an imam. It shows that it's required for an imam of the Muslims. But if there's no one for us to give bay'ah to, you know, what can we do? When there's a time that's the imam, this hadith is applicable, yes. Yeah, most of the uh, hadith, if you find, like in Sahih Muslim, Kitab al-Imara, the book of ruling and so forth, uh, Kitab al-Ahcham and Sahih al-Bukhari, the book of uh, uh, injunction, uh, most of these hadith are referring to the Imam of the Muslims. And that's why you usually will find in it, for instance, the hadith that says, if two people receive the bay'ah, kill the later of latter of the two, whoever he may be. So let us imagine now we have in a city like in, uh, uh, where Musa is in North Carolina, we find two Imams of the Masjid. Should we go now and take the second Imam and, uh, you know, put him against the wall and shoot him? No. I mean, this is obviously, this hadith is not applicable for that. And likewise, when the Prophet ﷺ said, that the imam should be from Quraysh. Does this now apply? We should go to each message. Anybody who is running a message who is not from Quraysh, say, okay, you don't fill this condition, so therefore you must leave your position? No. So these hadith, uh, in, uh, these, uh, which are mentioned by the Prophet ﷺ, refer to the imam of the Muslims. Now that does not mean certain issues of fiqh, certain points of understanding, cannot be derived from these hadith and applied to local imams. Yes, they can but they are not applicable in its totality, in its entirety, upon these local imams. There's a question about the same thing which we did. What does the Quran Why does the Quran reject the group one of the If you mean you and those who preach, uh, we are commanded to preach in the Quran. If you mean Jama'at and Tabliyah, uh, that specific Jama'at, Yes, because they have uh, adopted a path of da'wah which is not the path of the Prophet And I explained that uh, last night or maybe the night before, I'm not certain. Uh, you can tell the Prophet is getting wrong. 
uh, either it's because the um, uh, what did I say? Yes, because uh, they first of all they do not preach to tawhid uh, initially. They preach to what they know as fadah and amal, the virtues, virtuous deeds. And likewise, uh, they also use a lot of weak hadith. Uh, likewise, they uh, obligate people to do things which they are not obligated to in the religion, like going out for 40 days and so forth. Uh, likewise, they do not have much concern regarding religious knowledge. And so therefore, it's not uncommon to find those people who are going out uh, to preach uh, are not uh, knowledgeable. Uh, there's a funny story which shows this group uh, that one time they were in Arabia and uh, they asked a Bedouin to go with them on Khuruj. So the Bedouin went with them on Khuruj and they came to a message in Riyadh. And the Bedouin, they told the Bedouin, usually after Salah, you know, one of them stands up and gives a bayan. So they asked the Bedouin to stand up and give a bayan. Now the Bedouin being uh, naturally uh, intelligent as Bedouins usually are, uh, he realized that this is something, he's in a position which really he shouldn't be in when he saw all the people praying in front of him and the imam and the beards and so forth. So he says, uh, does any of you in this message know who I am? And when people said, no, we don't know who you are, he said, okay, salam alaikum, and he ran from the message. Uh, because he wasn't able to, uh, uh, you know, uh, give a bayan. And that's what they do to brothers. I've seen them sometimes take a brother who just took a shahada, you know, just maybe a few days ago, or sometimes in the same trip, they find somebody taking shahada, and they immediately tell him to stand up and give a bayan. What can he talk about when he just learned his shahada? Yeah, he needs to be sit down and taught before he speaks. And so that's why, you know, they have these problems in a lot of My question was about You can have another question then. Okay. Um, I, uh, uh, should I ask that question? Well, I, mean, I, have, I have two questions. Okay. Should I ask that question? If you feel that there's something else you want me to add, just speak about it. I'll put this in first. Okay. Um, um, you said earlier that um, we should uh, support them in uh, the good things that I can offer. That means, you know, in general, preaching is good. Right. Uh, if he's a scholar, he can go on Khuruj. But since I don't know, I mean, I can't see everybody in the back, but I don't think there are scholars in this room. Uh, so then, therefore, none of us really should go on Khuruj. Uh, but if he's a scholar, he should go. But how can we encourage him? For instance, if a brother is from Jerusalem, they really come to us and say to us that they're doing on Khuruj. Why don't you say, well, may Allah reward you. Uh, this is a noble deed, indeed, to take the path of the prophets by preaching to people. Uh, this is something which Allah has given a great reward from. But as you know, brother, and this is where it comes to correction, that, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has commanded us uh, to uh, preach with knowledge. And, uh, you know, zeal in itself, uh, while it is good uh, and is something commendable, we should also learn our religion. So, would you like to come? We can maybe sit with some sheikh or sit with some scholar. Or if you have some books to give to him, you know you can learn these books or contact somebody and this is how one encourages somebody in the truth and at the same time correcting his mistake and his error um, my other question is um, you mentioned uh, earlier about Mala that we should um, uh, about being kind to each other and being loyal to each other um, in a household um, either spouse whether it's either a man or a woman if they want to do good to, to a brother outside of your sister outside of them, like giving them some food or giving them some money. And the other staff objects to this because they feel that this is taking food out of uh, their house or taking money from the house. Which should um, be the brother or sister's position after that? Uh, of course, the wives are to obey their husbands. 
So if the husband objects, the wife should obey the husband. And know that her reward is still uh, with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because whoever intends to do good is rewarded for it, even if that good is not actually executed. Uh, now, in terms of uh, the husband, while the matter rests with him in the end, he should not do something which will cause commotion and chaos in his household. But rather he should try to, you know, uh, assure his wife that uh, this will not harm and that indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will give us more if we give and that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will bless us with more things. And this might, you know, calm her fears and so forth. And if he, she's still concerned, he might be a wise man and say, okay, then therefore we don't have to give uh, this much, we can give just this much, you know what I'm saying? To encourage uh, people to do good and to give charity. Well, there's many things. I mean, for instance, the imam, they can send uh, the imam to different conferences and talks, uh, you know, put money and send him so that he can learn and benefit. Uh, they can maybe uh, help the imam go visit other imams who have knowledge, and then that imam can sit with them or they can invite other imams to sit with this imam and teach him. Uh, they can give the imam books and tapes they feel might benefit him. Anything to support him and to encourage him. Uh, they can try to assist him uh, if he has uh, is not good in leadership skills, saying, well, would you like me to help you do this? And, you know, perhaps if that's done in a nice way, he might respond favorably and so forth. These are all, inshallah, useful ways. Assalamu alaykum, sir. Uh, can I request you to give my points in Arabic so sure I shall explain it Okay, so Brother Nawaf has uh, three uh, additions to the lecture, and they're all uh, correct uh, statements on his part, which I will uh, summarize what he said. I, said I, I mentioned concerning memorization of the Quran, and while this is something which is good and required or uh, encouraged, 
uh, also acting upon the Qur'an and judging to the Qur'an and applying the Qur'an is more important than just memorizing its words. And this is the correct uh, statement on his part. Uh, it's a good clarification uh, if I neglect to say that. And likewise, uh, as the Sahaba said, we used to uh, learn ten verses, all what was in it from knowledge and action, and then go on to the next ten verses. And likewise, some of them said, uh, we learned Iman, and then we learned the Qur'an, so we were we increased in Iman. Uh, the second thing he mentioned that uh, it is true that following the Sunnah is required and important and uh, virtuous, uh, but some people make a mistake by only following some hadith and exclusion to others, and we should be required, or the way of the people of the Sunnah is that they follow uh, all the hadith of the Prophet and not just choose certain hadith. And also he said that the points that I mentioned, uh, not all of them are the same uh, priority and importance, which is true, uh, but that, for instance, uh, Placing the Quran and Sunnah in its proper status obviously is more important uh, in a person's life uh, than the existence of an Imam uh, of the Ummah and so forth. And that is correct. But the idea of those eight points wasn't to say that they were equal in importance. But these were, as I uh, said in the lecture, these are eight necessary steps that we must work toward uh, to uh, unify the Ummah. Uh, obviously, you cannot have an Imam if we do not place the Quran and Sunnah back in its proper status. Obviously, we cannot. Uh, have the brotherhood which we required unless we have the Quran and Sunnah back in its proper status and so forth and so on. Is that not fair? Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. I wanted to relate to one thing in terms of uh, uh, I'm assuming that most of the Muslims, the indigenous Muslims of uh, African American descent have uh, brought their Islam from Elijah Muhammad, Farrakhan, Wallace Dean, and his movement. And what I'm what I'm relating this situation to is back home in Pittsburgh, we've been having a problem of uh, the disunity and trying to convince each other of their belief at the extent of their commitment in terms of what path that they follow. Uh, and we have what we call monthly dinner at the end of the month. So we invite all of the Muslims and also guests from outside to discuss some of the issues on Islam. But what I want to ask this question is that uh, among us, the brothers, they, they uh, interchange with each other. There's no what we call serious uh, problems about it, but it's just probably a situation of misunderstanding. So what I wanted to ask you in terms of this, uh, I don't know whether this should be uh, proper, but I wanted to make one request if inshallah we can uh, have permission to approach you in terms of coming to Pittsburgh and uh, help you clear up this. But at the same time, if you can, give us some advice that we can carry back to Pittsburgh related to this particular situation. I think that uh, channels of communication uh, must be kept open at all times, even with the unbelievers. Uh, one can never, should never close the channel of communication. And one should never uh, despair concerning someone's guidance. Uh, one does not know somebody might become guided on his deathbed. So one must always keep the channels of communication open. But at the same time, we don't want to confuse issues either for the unbelievers or for ourselves. 
And um, as long as we make things clear and we do not try to hide a part of the religion, uh, then to keep the channels of communication open is, is not uh, wrong. So, for instance, let us imagine that um, I had a neighbor who was following uh, Elijah Muhammad. And he believed that Elijah Muhammad was a prophet after the Messenger of Allah. Now, this is apostasy. This takes a person outside of the fold of Islam. Okay? I can keep the channels of communication open with him if I feel that this might lead to his guidance. However, though, I should not hide the truth by making him misunderstand that I believe that he's a Muslim. You see? So as long as he understands that, look, I believe that you cannot be a Muslim if you believe there's a prophet after the prophet Muhammad But at the same time, you try to keep the channels of communication open with them by trying to give them da'wah, trying to say a kind word to them, uh, whatever the matter might be. This, this might be tolerable in, in some circumstances. And the same thing would go with uh, uh, the community of Wadi Muhammad. Uh, if I had a neighbor or a uh, person who works with me uh, from Wadi Muhammad's community, I would have to be required in my religion, as my religion dictates, to explain to him that, look, the Christian and the Jew is a disbeliever. And we cannot consider the Christian and the Jew to be a believer going to paradise. But that, at the same time, and that what they believe, that, uh, or what is taught by some of them, or what is, you know, in some of their gatherings, that Christians and Jews who are believers and will go to paradise and so forth, is an incorrect belief. But that does not mean that I have to close all the channels of communication with that individual, or that imam, or that messenger. I can still uh, keep the channels of communication open. I can still, uh, if I think that there's going to be a benefit uh, in da'wah, invite them to my house or to give them a meal or something like that. Uh, send them presents like books or tapes or something. You see what I'm saying? Uh, visit them if I think that was going to help, if they were sick and so forth. But at the same time, not hide any of the beliefs. What I think what happens is the problem is, uh, sometimes in our zeal for unity, which is required in our religion, we want to sort of close our eyes to some of these problems that exist in beliefs and so forth. And what we should do is we should be clear about those matters, but keep the means of communication open uh, with those who want to seek the truth. Uh, three points, and then I'll take the channel the last question from the sister. First thing is that there will be a workshop on the sectarian groups because I feel it's extremely important. That's why I'm going ahead and that. Lunch is extremely important. No, this question. question. Okay. Uh, This is from the sister side. It says that does Allah Subhanahu wa Taala create people gay or lesbian? As some people claim that they were born this way. Now, just add a little thing to this: that there are some psychotherapists who say that some uh, people, especially women, who went through sexual abuse from early age, that when they grow up, they, some of them become prostitutes and some of them become gay and lesbian. What, what is this from the Part of it is from the um, That if the question means that uh, if someone created a homosexual or a lesbian in the sense that they cannot uh, stop themselves from this behavior that is a falsehood because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not going to prohibit something which the creation itself uh, cannot uh, itself refrain from uh, if the question means that uh, could it be that some people might have a tendency 
uh, to this and are created with a tendency to this, uh, this is a matter which is open to debate. And uh, perhaps uh, I wouldn't say you should be take a, a stand saying that this is not a possibility. Uh, indeed, some of the athar of the salaf, uh, which need to investigation to say that uh, when a man uh, has uh, sex with his wife uh, while she is menstruating, uh, the children uh, result uh, with uh, this type of tendencies. So uh, there is, could be a possibility uh, that people might have a tendency to something. But does that tendency in itself uh, mean that the person is unable to control his behavior? In other words, like for instance, if I ask somebody now in the room, okay, uh, stop your heart beating just for a second or two. Could you stop it? No. It's something which is you, you're not able to control. Okay? But uh, if people have a tendency to something, they can still are able to control their behavior. So the issue is that do people might have a tendency a predisposed tendency to something. This is something which needs to be investigated, and I wouldn't be uh, dogmatic concerning no concerning this, but uh, does that, if they do have a tendency, just for the sake of argument, uh, does that mean that uh, they cannot uh, stop their behavior and adhere to Allah's laws? No, it does not mean that. And so therefore this is an excuse trying to use Allah's qadr uh, to try to uh, defend their sins, and this is the way of the mushrikun the pagans in every time and age they use Allah's decree in order to justify their sins as mentioned in the Quran and Allah knows what